There are lots of things a business needs to help it run efficiently. Document management, printing, IT support, digitization, data security and more. As a true managed service provider, Workflow Solutions can help with these and a wide range of other business needs. Saving time and money for businesses across the UK. Help your workflow with Workflow Solutions, the work from anywhere experts. Visit workflo-solutions.co.uk Good morning and welcome to the Go Radio Business Show with Sir Tom Hunter and Lord Willie Hockey. I'm Don Martin, editor of The Herald and Herald on Sunday, and your host as we talk food prices, the Northern Ireland Protocol, and try hard not to mention the football. And of course, we'll be sharing brilliant and free advice from the boardroom. We're also joined this morning by Gordon Ritchie, Managing Director of Crombie. Don't forget, if you ever miss an episode, simply subscribe to the Go Radio Business Show podcast. And if you have a question for Tom and Willie, please email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk. The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. So, gents, let's start with Europe, where it's been a pretty seismic week, Willie. What impact could scrapping the Northern Ireland Protocol have on business? <laughs> Donald, first to say, yes, it has been a harrowing week. But uh, on the Northern Ireland question, yeah, I think the ramifications of what's going on here could be felt for years and years, for decades to come. When you get involved in an international treaty, which it is, then if you want to go against what you've You've signed legal documentation, but worse than that, you've shaken hands with people on an agreement and then you want to Welsh on that. Um, I think your standing as a world power is diminished greatly. And I think that, I honestly think the Tories knew that this day would come, that they knew you'd have to do it. And I, I, they just keep blaming Europe and no one can say one thing that Europe have changed in the agreement that's making, that's creating the problems that we have at the moment in Northern Ireland. Are you concerned about retaliatory measures, Tom? Oh, well, goodness. It is, it, as Willie said, you know, in any negotiation, it's always, you know, there's give and take. But the thing about tough negotiators, and I've, I've dealt with some tough negotiators in my time, is when you shook their hand, a deal was done, and that was it. And um, one of the toughest, actually, was, was Dave Whelan when he, bought the business and he and he shook my hand and he never after that there was plenty of time for him to come back and change and all the rest of it but he said no I shook your hand Tom that's a deal done and I don't think anybody can really trust the UK now because when you shake Boris's hand you don't know what it means Willie and that's a bad situation for the UK to be in Willie's exactly right the mantra was get Brexit done and nothing else mattered. And they absolutely knew this day of reckoning was coming. And it's now here. And of course, there needs to be a bit of give and take. Of course, the people in Northern Ireland can't be disadvantaged because of all this. But come on, you need to negotiate in good faith and leave your opponent with something. You just can't, you know, you can't rubbish these agreements. It's just... Not correct. Yeah, I think you don't have to listen to us. There is very serious Tory backbenchers 
who've actually stated that we will be we will be seen as morally corrupt if we do anything to go against an agreement that we have signed up to. So, for me, sadly, Boris Johnson won't think for one moment, right, about whether we look morally corrupt or not. So he will just do whatever he has to do to get over the line. But what 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 will be interesting is if they do that and they break the protocol, it will be interesting to see if we have the parliament reopening instalment. Still talking about Europe, the Bank of England chief Andrew Bailey is worried the situation in Ukraine and the impact on food prices and problems in the supply chain will be apocalyptic. What businesses will suffer most from this and what should they do? Yes, we've been saying for weeks and weeks and weeks here that Andrew... Months, Willie. Months. Months. Months that Andrew Bailey is asleep at the wheel. And it's interesting that more and more people are turning against him this week, right? And I think, you know, he has shown to be weak, that he has not done the things that he should have done months and months ago and now he's been called out, right? We've seen that, you know, the inflation is above 9% for the first time in 40 years, since the last time, you know, that Maggie Thatcher's government was in power. And this is this is frightening, and it's criminal, it's been it's been allowed to happen. And what they're doing is, you know, I've seen Liz Trust this week talking about, you know, it's a global thing, it's a global problem. But people in other countries have reacted and they're not in as bad a position as we are. And I think... To hear Liz Truss saying that no one can predict an economic downturn is absolute nonsense. And that is at the heart of the problem. We have got people at the moment running the country who actually believe that. What we need is some clever people. We need to see Richie Sunak now being real, real clever as to how we help the people get out of the problem that they're going to have over the next few months. What's actually happening in the UK economy, Donald, is, is really... I've never saw it in my lifetime because you've got inflation, as Willie said, running at a 40-year high. Interest rates are still historically low, but the unemployment figures, Willie, you and I have talked about this before, the unemployment rate in the UK is still an all-time low. Now, the only thing I can think of is that in Britain, people have left the workforce through COVID, through our demographics of perhaps an older um, demographic in the UK, and therefore there are less people available for work. Therefore, the wage inflation still coming, Willie, because normally what happens is you get inflation, an economic slowdown, but that squeezes unemployment, so people don't ask for the wage increases because there's more people looking for jobs, but that's not what's happening here. So it's a strange mix, Willie. You used the the ugly word last week, stagflation. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, I've watched great commentators this week talking about how 100% they will not avoid stagflation in the States. And that is the worst thing that can happen to a central bank, stagflation, the worst thing. And we can see it happening just now. And I think that what we have to do here is to be smart. Because I'll tell you, if we don't have smart politicians, we're not very controversial on the show. I'm going to be controversial now. Come I will on, guarantee you, if the Tories don't come up with something clever right now, the cost of living crisis could bring this government down. Well, they're thinking about bringing in a 1p cut in income tax. Is that going to make a difference? Absolutely no chance. No, no chance. We need cleverer moves than that. And, and Willie, what we've got to remember is that in October... 
there will be another utility bill hike. This this is continuing, Donald. This isn't the worst of it yet. We, we've been talking for weeks and weeks and weeks, you know, with the, the governor of the bank saying one thing. We had the boss of Scottish Power saying there's a potential the way things are going at the moment where people's energy bills will be 200% more. I don't know why people... And this, we're giving people £150 or whatever we're doing. This is a drop in the ocean for what people need. Off Gem are considering a change from a six-monthly to a quarterly review of the price cap from October. So who's going to benefit more? Consumers or energy companies, Tom? Oh, goodness. I mean, this... This is actually a great question of our time. And this, I agree with Willie here, depending on government and its Westminster action, this this could change a government because we've never been in a position where, that in my lifetime, where utility bills are going up at such a rate. Now, is there something a government can do about that? I think there probably is. Um, it doesn't feel right to me being a free marketeer, but on this occasion, I actually do think government intervention is needed because the misery of these utility bill increases is quite devastating. Really? Tom, you touched on something earlier about the unemployment numbers, right, which is good reading. Yes. I'm saying this is false. You think it's false? This is false. Brexit has created this. Right. And I'm saying, unfortunately, the perfect storm will come when the dust settles and then people have a real idea about what unemployment, that real unemployment number looks like. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that'll be the day when I'm talking about where you could, you know, that the government will be right in trouble. Right. Yeah, the UK jobless rate fell to 3.7%, you say, so it's lowest level in almost 50 years. Yeah. But the Scottish rate is a record low of 3.2%. There's something not right about it, so so Willie doesn't believe it. Um, I'm not sure. The only thing I can find by trying to read about this was that people have left the workforce, Willie. That, that, and I just not, they just said, right, we've built up our savings and we're just not going to do it anymore. Yeah. But I don't even know if that's correct. Bringing it back to energy prices, are you surprised? Although they are beginning to hint now, but we haven't had a windfall tax yet. Well, I don't know if a one, uh, you know, one of windfall tax would actually work. What I'd like to see is, is that um, we mentioned this a few weeks ago, but the energy company should not be allowed to make more than 10% of what they made last year. And I think that's a good uplift. And then at the same time, you know, they've got this misery for the man in the street. And I think that what we have to do here is that we need to look at this. We need to interrogate. It's not enough for the chief exec of the big power companies to come on and say, we're going to, this is what we need to invest, this is what we need to invest. Well, what were you going to invest if you only made five billion? You must have, you've had a long-term plan, so you just can't hide behind that. And I think at the moment it is it's just unacceptable that we've got all this grief going down to the people and you've got the energy companies who are complaining about it. You know, they're saying to the government, you've got to help us with this. Well, what about you helping us? What about taking less? Well, Tom, if there was a windfall tax, should it be on the power companies or on the oil and gas companies? Yeah. Or both. I mean, there's there's a misunderstanding about it. the energy companies are, are lobbed into one group, Donald, and they're actually in two very um, distinct groups. 
One is the utility companies who charge you, and they actually don't make a lot. But the upstream oil and gas companies, the exploration companies, they are having it off just now. Now, fundamentally, I am I, I don't really agree with windfall taxes and everything. I'm a free marketeer, and I understand when when things are good, you tuck it away because in in that business, you know, it's the ebbs and the flows. Um, maybe this is the one time, though. Maybe this is the one time because we need to find a way for the UK consumer to actually get through this. And my goodness, if you've got families going, do I put on my heating or do I feed my kids? That I mean, that's just not. That shouldn't. That should be against the law. Yeah. It's the whole supply chain, right? It's it's the it's the oil companies, it's the power companies, and and I want to be fair to companies. Right, so let's just make it that we're going to put everything back that is beyond what we thought we were going to make. And, you know, to be honest, I've not looked at utility companies' price, so maybe the guys are right. Maybe they are going to lose out as well. Even charging people 200% more, their profits are going to be down. Then you've got a case to the government to try and step in and help. But if you're not, if you're making more money, and as Tom says, obviously for the oil and the gas companies back producing, it's a Klondike, and that should not happen. Willie, talking of energy, once again, your warnings and heat pumps. Seem oh, to don't be start again right. in no, heat that, pumps. That, Come the, on. The latest one, I love this. The cost of installing <laughs> them has now hit 30,000. Wait for this. What? Because millions of radiators are too small to work with the new technology. <laughs> What's going on? We've said that, you know, <laughs> the listeners must be getting fed up. It's going to, this is going to be called the Heat Pump Show. Right. Welcome see, to the Goradio Heat Pump Show. Um, I've I done a conference out at the, the constru Scottish Construction Hub a few weeks ago, and I, you know, I threw the gauntlet down to people, anybody, you know, that's that's manufacturing or trying to sell heat pumps on the basis that, that, you know, it's cutting your carbon footprint <laughs> and it's cheaper. Honestly, this is ridiculous. And at a time when people have no money, the worst thing in the world that people can be told is that they've got to fight heat pumps. Um, I listen, I absolutely defer to my colleague here. He knows more about heat pumps than MD I've ever met. <laughs> Well, coming up after the break, we'll be talking to Gordon Ritchie, Managing Director of Crombie, the fashion choice of royalty and presidents. Don't forget, if you want to join the boardroom, you can put your questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk and if you ever miss an episode, simply subscribe to the Go Radio Business Show podcast. The Go Radio Business Show with Workflow Solutions. Helping you with a wide range of business needs. Go Radio! There are lots of things a business needs to help it run efficiently. Document management, printing, IT support, digitization, data security and more. As a true managed service provider, Workflow Solutions can help with these and a wide range of other business needs. Saving time and money for businesses across the UK. Help your workflow with Workflow Solutions, the work-from-anywhere experts. Visit workflo-solutions.co.uk The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Welcome back, as in the latest of our brilliant series on Great Scots, we tell the story of Kieran Mazumdar. Kieran Mazumdar was born on the 23rd of March 1953 in Bangalore, India. She studied biology and zoology at Bangalore University and hoped to go on to medical school, 
but was unable to obtain a scholarship. Her father, a master brewmaster at United Brewery, suggested Kieran follow in his footsteps, so she went to Melbourne University in Australia to study malting and brewing. She was the only woman enrolled in the course and topped her class, earning a degree as a master brewer in 1975. Upon returning to India, however, Kieran discovered that no companies were willing to offer a brewing job to a woman, and she was forced to look abroad for opportunities. Around this time, she met Leslie Auchincloss, the founder of Biocon Biochemicals Limited in Ireland, who was seeking a business partner based in India to help manufacture enzymes for use in beer, food and textiles. With Leslie's encouragement, Kieran returned home and established Biocon India in 1978 in the garage of her rented house. Facing credibility challenges due to her youth, gender and inexperience, Kieran was unable to secure funding for her company or even hire employees. Her first employee was a retired garage mechanic. She also faced technological challenges associated with building a biotech business in a country with poor infrastructure. Good quality water, uninterrupted power, sterile labs and imported research equipment were not easily available in India at that time. Despite the challenges, within a year Biocon India was manufacturing and exporting enzymes to the US and Europe, the first Indian company to do so. Under Kieran's direction, the company began to evolve from an industrial enzymes manufacturing company into a fully integrated biopharmaceutical company with a portfolio of products and research focus on diabetes, oncology and autoimmune diseases. The company continued to grow and in 1989 Leslie Ochenkloss sold his interest in Biocon India to Unilever. Nine years later, Kieran, together with her fiancé, Scotsman John Shaw, raised $2 million to buy out all outstanding Biocon shares from new owners ICI, making their company fully independent. The couple married the same year and John joined Biocon's management team, becoming vice chairman in 2001. Today, John and Kieran Mazumdar Shaw have an estimated net worth of $4.5 billion and Forbes has ranked Kieran as one of the 100 most powerful women in the world. Impressive strength and determination to overcome so many early obstacles, Tom. Yeah, I mean, I, I have met them both and um, she is certainly a force of nature. And when people are thinking about starting a business and they see all the obstacles in front of them, this is just sheer determination, you know, to be able to do this in Bangalore with all of the obstacles that are in front of you, it maybe makes starting your business in Scotland look just that wee bit easier, Donald. So maybe we shouldn't moan as much and just go on with it. Indeed. Oh, fantastic story again. And obviously, you know, it's an adversity. Obviously, you know, she can't get a job. She's went and got a first-class degree, but no one in the industry back then wanted, in the brewing industry, wanted to employ a woman so that she's got to look for other avenues. But again, um, a, Unbelievable, and obviously you see how much they've given back. You know, not only have they been earning money, but they've been great entrepreneurs with philanthropy of the heart of everything they do. Sadly, uh, we had news this week, the passing of another great Scott, Sir Angus Grosser. Yeah, um, we just recently did Angus on the um, great Scott and Go Radio business, and um, I actually sent the the show along to see if he could listen to it. I don't know if, if he ever did, but um, he was one of Scotland's greats and he'll be sadly missed. And um, just a wee story against myself from Angus. He, we used to go to a conference he organised up at Glen Eagles and 
I've got a great love of cars and Willie, I don't know if you remember the Rolls Royce with the soft top and the teak back and the blue with the brushed aluminium hood. I thought I was the bee's knees in this. And I drew up to Glen Eagles and I still just park at the front door, right? Great. Get out, feeling like cock of the north here. And I could see Angus out the corner of my eye, but he didn't say anything at that point. But then later in the night, well, he, he said, Tom, Tom, come over. And he's kind of the way he used to get. And he said, Tom, you're far too wealthy to be driving a car like that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but but that is true. I mean, it's so sad, that the, the passing of, of Angus. But back in the day, Tom, that he used to say in the west of Scotland, when a business guy bought a Rolls Royce, he was actually on the way out. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> well, thankfully, in my case, it, it was only half true. <laughs> We're now joined by Gordon Ritchie, Managing Director of iconic fashion brand Crombie. Welcome to the show, Gordon. Thanks, Donald. Nice to meet you. Well, we're absolutely delighted to have you here. Tell us about your retail and business journey and how you came to be involved with such an illustrious brand. Uh, well, I mean, right back at the start when I left left school, my very first job was in a tailor's shop learning to measure people up for, for suits, you know. So that was my sort of journey into into this world where I've, I've ended up and worked, worked my way up through that. Uh, over time, moved down to London after starting in Aberdeen in Scotland. And I actually went to work for Crombie about, uh, 12, 13 years ago now mm -hmm. and uh, went in there at that time they hadn't been in the wholesale market for about 20 years they'd only been selling through their own stores at that time and I was tasked with taking the brand out into the, the world again and uh, within many, sorry, can I just, how many sure. stores did they have at that time and at, at how that big time, was their profile? Right, at that time they had a mixture of stores and concessions in department stores in the UK only. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think they had about six to eight stores of their own and then a number of concessions and stores as well, you know. Um, their profile at that time, it, it, they were kind of toddling along, shall we so say, what, you know. So what difference did you make? Uh, well, within six months... <laughs> Get to nitty gritty. <laughs> within six months, we'd written orders with stores in 22 countries. Wow. You know, and then I was there for about three years and we... The, the one thing I was asked to do at the start was to position Crombie in the best stores in the world. Within three years, we were trading in 35 countries and we were in all the best stores in How the world. How did you manage to achieve that? There was myself and an assistant and a suitcase <laughs> <laughs> and a budget for travel, which we were very lucky to have. So it was very much about getting out there in the world and traveling around the world and knocking on doors, you know, making the most of opportunities, bumping into people in lifts, you know, and that guy that I met in the lift six months later got the fashion director's job at Bloomingdale's, you know, and having built up this network and contacts and, so how did you, know. you you know, is there any lessons, anybody listening in? Because that's a hard thing to do, yeah. to go and establish it. What are the key lessons that you've got from that experience? I think it's one, if, you're, if you've got the drive and the enthusiasm and the passion to do something, that really you can open doors and don't be afraid to knock on doors and don't be afraid to just try things, 
you know. So, so tell me about the story of Crombie because, and until recently, when a, a pal of ours bought yeah. it, I I didn't even know it was Scottish, really. I mean, the Crombie coat was yeah. iconic, but so just just give us a wee bit of the, of the background. Yeah, well, of, it, of the brand. I mean, it is a very iconic brand. I mean, it's in the Oxford English Dictionary. Wow. Uh, the word Crombie to describe a gentleman's overcoat, wow. but that it qualifies it by saying it's actually from the company Crombie. Have you got you know? one, Willie? Uh, you'll not believe it. <laughs> this is true. I've got three oh, in, okay. my, in, my hall, in my cloakroom in my hall. <laughs> and I've had, a, I've had, a, I've had, a, well, I've got one left for the days when I used to wear it with my bother boots. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The other two are a bit more fancier. But, but he was um, down the gorbals. I've been a great thing. fan of Crombie since I was 14. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm the same, you know. And uh, I mean, the brand started in 1805. Wow. In Cothall, which is just up the river, River Don in Aberdeen. And um, it was started by John Crombie. He had been doing research about cloth producers and mills in the UK, and he'd set up a mill in Cothall, had taken workers up from Yorkshire to work up there. And he he worked on the cloth until he felt quite quickly that he was producing as good quality as anyone else was doing. And he got on his horse in 1805 horse. and <laughs> took the horse to London to visit the royal tailors with his quality cloth. And that was the, the start of a journey, you know. Um, you know, Crombie's got a, ro a, a long history of, you know, connections to the royal family and to really been, you know, selling cloth and goods initially before they moved into clothing, you know, to the, you know, the 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 sort of elite in, in London, Paris initially. And, um, you know, they moved to Granham Mills further down the River Don, which grew into one of the, the biggest mills in the UK for producing wool. And then, you know, incredible stories. They were big in Japan in the 1800s. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Thomas Glover, uh, known as the Scottish Samurai, uh, one of the founders of the Mitsubishi Corporation, initially went to Japan working for Crombie, decided right. he was going to go to Japan and knock on the door. The country was closed. It wasn't really open to foreigners and it wasn't open for trading. And he landed in Japan with his suitcase of Crombie cloth, became friends with the emperor, was dressing wow. the emperor in, wow. in Crombie, Crombie wow. coats. And so Gordon Kanashi, sorry, just on that. So really, you no. Know, today when you know everyone talks about the worldwide iconic brands, yeah, Crombie must have been one of the first, you know, clothing brands that that people would have known about, you know, through through many many countries back in back in those days. Yeah, it really was. You know, yeah. I mean, in a in a stroke of marketing genius, even before they were making clothes, um, they decided when they were supplying lengths of cloths to the tailors who were then making making up coats out of the cloth because it was the best cloth for coats they started supplying them with labels wow. and said to them when you make up the cloth for your client when you make the cloth up into a coat for your client sew the label in wow that says it's made with genuine crombie cloth aberdeen scotland amazing you know? so of course the customers because the what we know or most people know is a crombie coat was originally called a chesterfield because it was the Earl of Chesterfield famously wore the style first. But because Crombie made the ideal cloth for those coats 
and then they started appearing with the Crombie label in them, yeah. they became known as Crombies. Marketing. Because the customers were coming in and saying, I want a genuine Crombie. I want a Crombie coat. Wow. Yeah. And the label inside became, the Crombie label became a sign of prestige. So you were really just continuing on this pioneering Scottish spirit when you took your suitcase and went off to 30-odd countries. That, that's right, you know, and I, I must admit, I was only learning that history myself as I was was doing and the I job, it, you know. When you were going to America, you were using all that sales patter. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is just genuinely such such a great story, you know. It's but the fact, but you know... A pioneering, Willie, I mean, we've talked about it often in the show, about, you know, Japan was shut as a country and yet a Scottish entrepreneur yeah. got over there did the networking, got in with the emperor. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And I mean, a and built... Scott. A great Scott. Exactly. Yeah. And built up a substantial business in yeah. Japan at really? that time as well. I mean, I think it would be the equivalent of like a £9 million turnover wow. today that they were doing in the 1800s. But, you know? but again, so, when we talk about you know, the great Scots and this you know, going for world domination, turn, if you take that story and add it to Jordan and Mafson in China, yeah. I mean, the Scots are leading the way in Asia. The Years ago. That's right. It's amazing. You know? But I must admit that my great love for Crombie, I, I, I've got to say that I didn't know it was this iconic Scottish brand. No, I, I didn't, didn't know, know until this week. Yeah, well, I think that's something that we need to, to do yeah. is, the, is the well, new owners of Scotland. Exactly, a lot of people don't know right. anyway when they listen this morning. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Yeah. You know, so. it's, it's just a pity that um, when they'd done that back then, obviously it was all about the cloth, but yeah. it would have been fantastic if you owned the IP for everybody who made a black gentleman's coat today. Yeah, exactly. You know, but I mean, Have you not got any samples, Scott? <laughs> well, I yeah. didn't bring my suitcase no, with no, me no, today. No, no. You know, so. Well, Willie's got three. I don't have any. Yeah. You know, I don't have any. Yeah. <laughs> Bringing it up to date, what's happening with Crombie now because of the acquisition, of course, yeah. and tells how that came about. Right. Uh, well, see, I I was there, you know, about about ten years ago, and um, you know, it was pri previously privately owned, and um, you know, I I felt that I'd done as much as I could in that short period of three years. It had been quite an intense intense period of work, but it was you know ultimately very successful. Um, but I I got to the end of three years, and there was a a kind of moment where I realised that under that ownership or the previous ownership, I wasn't going to be able to take it further. And I, I remember the day I thought that and I walked, I was having a meeting with the owner and I walked back to my own office thinking, I think I've done as much as I can here, you know, under under this ownership. Was and, you shake it in a sugarly peg, Gordon? No, <laughs> no, but I, I got back to my uh, office and I had headhunter called me uh, and had this other company that had a great backstory I'd just had investment and wanted to go global, all the rest of it. And I just thought, I'm going to I'm gonna take it, you right. know, and I, I moved on. But I left thinking, I was really only getting started here, you know. You know, there was so much more that we, we could have done. And as I say, I didn't feel that was going to happen under the previous ownership, you know. And almost immediately, I was getting calls from people I knew in bigger companies saying, oh, look, do you think you know, there would be a chance to buy Crombie. Do you think he would be up for selling it? And having got to know that owner very well and working next door to him, you know, when I was there for three years, I honestly felt that he would never sell it, you know? 
And then, you know, over the years I've gone on, you know, pretty much been a consultant, you know, since working, turning brands round, companies round. So what's some of the brands that you've, you've worked um, with? Called? Another significant one was a sunglasses co- company called Kirk Originals. Right. Okay. Uh, which was very big in the 1990s uh-huh. uh, on the sort of music scene, Oasis. Liam Gallagher famously right. wore them at Glastonbury as Oasis had their, their big moment, you know, and he still wears Kirk Originals, actually, right. you know. And that that was a brand that I'd known when it had come out and had thought it was a cool brand. Uh-huh. And I actually approached them um, because I'd looked... Someone tipped me off that they were needing some help and I'd kind of forgotten about it, you know. And I had a look and I thought, yeah, they need some help, you know. (laughs) So I approached them and, um, yeah, again, we relaunched it within six months with, you know, big success. And, you know, they're now very well-established, influential brand in in the sunglasses market as as an independent brand in the sunglasses market, which is dominated by big players, you know, they've they've done well. When you look at and you go into something, a brand like that that's maybe struggling a wee bit, what, you know, just for the listeners this morning, what what's the kind of key things that you you've obviously been in the business for a long time and yeah. and you know what you're doing? Is there a mental checklist that you go right? I'm looking at this brand. It's got ABC. Yes, I can do something. What's the kind of thought process for me? What I find is that a lot of brands lose their way. And they lose their essence of what they were about in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And what I would say that I tend to do is identify the strong commercial aspects of the business that are still right for today. Right. You know, in the the current market. If that's not there, you wouldn't just say, look, there's nothing I can do today. That's right. And it's basically, it's about a lot of brands, you know, change hands over time. And maybe the owners they've lost sight of what made that brand successful in the beginning. So a lot of the time it's about focus on those original elements that made them successful, identifying the strongest commercial aspects and then building on that. So what happened that um, Jim ended up owning Crombie? What's the story there? Right, well, the brand ceased trading at the start of the pandemic. And uh, me and Jim had sort of got to know each other over over the the last few years we kind of been introduced through a mutual friend and um you know we'd been talking about various things and um when Crombie had ceased trading we'd been talking about acquiring a brand and originally Crombie wasn't really on our radar because you know there was this thought really that it wasn't a brand that was anybody would be able to buy it you know um and then I got a phone call from the CEO of another famous British brand, sort of tipping me off, saying, look, we've just had a phone call asking if we might be interested in Crombie. And he said, we're not, because the pandemic had hit. He goes, we're right. looking after our own business first. He goes, but I just thought you might be interested, Gordon. Ah, right. So I called Jim. Right, <laughs> And he said... Called the money man. Brilliant. Let's let's do it, you know. Um, so I think it was partly the fact that I'd worked there before. So, so you had this checklist and it was ticking all your boxes. Exactly. I had a good relationship with the previous owner from right. the job that I'd done there before. And although we weren't dealing with him directly, you know, we were dealing with his team, 
I felt that was potentially a factor in him agreeing to sell us right. the business, you know. But we then entered the negotiation stage. Ah, um, the negotiation? Yeah, which took almost a full two years, oh, wow. actually. Wow. You what? Know? Um, <laughs> for various reasons, which I don't know if I can no, well, should the... divulge. But, <laughs> um, no problem. But yeah, I mean, it took a full two years almost for the, wow. the negotiation process for us to finally secure the brand. So you when know? did you take over? Uh, it was February this oh, year. So it's only February. Yeah, right? so it's okay. very very new, you know. So we recent we just announced the acquisition uh, very recently, right. and we had an incredible reaction to that. You know, I mean, I put one post up on my LinkedIn, and literally had forty thousand people clicked what? on that wow. post. You know, I just reposted the press release announcing that we'd acquired it, and that was literally within days. You know, 40,000 people had clicked on that post, you wow. know. Gordon, what's your vision then for Crombie? Do you see it going into new markets? What's your plans? Yeah, well, I mean, the brand deserves to be repositioned as a brand of a global stature. Uh, we see ourselves very much as the custodians of the brand. It's only been under four ownerships, really, in its history. Time, we are the fourth group of people to, to own the brand. Wow. Originally, it was the Crombie family, and then it was a company called the Illingworth Morris from Yorkshire, who were a, yeah. a Yorkshire textile firm, mm -hmm. uh, which was actually run by Pamela Mason, who was the wife of a Hollywood actor, yeah. a British, right. English yeah. actor yes. Very in English Hollywood. Actor, yes. <laughs> and they owned it up until the 1980s, I think it was, when the... The, the next owner took over prior to us. Right. So we're actually only the fourth wow. owners wow. in, you know, now a brand now in its third century. Wow. So we see ourselves very much as the custodians of the next stage of the brand. And I think it's important that we tell the story. We make people aware of all this incredible history and heritage the brand has. And, you know, we want to reposition Crombie as a global brand of stature. In, in the market mm -hmm. you know I think there's not many brands that have this kind of story wow. behind them and this kind of heritage you know Amazing. it's older than Gucci it's older than Louis Vuitton it's older <laughs> than Hermes you know uh, and it's got that potential to to you know operate at that level of for the any market. models because while he's available well I, I will definitely say Gordon that the next <laughs> quote I buy trust me we'll see Crombie in the inside excellent excellent <laughs> bringing it back to reality what can we do better to help the fashion industry Gordon um, I think um, it's one of those industries that it's almost like there's it's it's the fact that the Crombie story is is quite unknown. You know, there's never been in all that time, it's always been independent people that have been taking these brands out into the world without really the backing of any government support in any way. Um, you know, over time, all the manufacturings drifted off, you know, out of the country. Um, and, you know, there's been no real sort of high-level support, you know, I think there's obviously a lot of new investment money around now and people are backing sort of new ventures. But you look at, you know, the UK, 
drives the world, drives the fashion business. You know, it's so influential and you can, you know, talk about Paris and Milan and, and New York, but really the oldest brands, the biggest brands and the most influential brands come from the UK. You know, when you look at Burberry and you look yeah. at the, the growth of Burberry over the years. Yes. And when you talk to people in Paris and Milan, they love British brands. They love Scottish knitwear, you know. They love everything that comes out of the UK, you know, and so, probably so love Scotland's it more than we do ourselves. Story, Gordon. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You it's, know, it's globally. Part you know. of the of the marketing story of Crombie, yeah. Definitely, yeah. I mean, Crombie is a Scottish brand and it's known as a British brand, really, you know, when you go out globally. And and you know, it's it's become more than just a Scottish brand. You know, Hopefully over the this years, morning you know. we've given a lot of listeners some new yeah. knowledge about Crombie and we wish you the very best of success yep. uh, going forward. So we wish, wish you and much. Jim all the yeah. very best with it. Gordon, pleasure to have you. Thank you. What a story. Thank pleasure you very much. You. Thank you. After the break, we go into the boardroom where Tom and Willie answer your questions and offer free business advice. If you want to take part, simply email your questions to go business at thisisgo.co.uk and if you ever miss an episode, simply subscribe to the Go Radio Business Show podcast. The Go Radio Business Show with Workflow Solutions. Helping your business with document management, print and IT solutions. Go Radio. There are lots of things a business needs to help it run efficiently. Document management, printing, IT support, digitization, data security and more. As a true managed service provider, Workflow Solutions can help with these and a wide range of other business needs, saving time and money for businesses across the UK. Help your workflow with Workflow Solutions, the work from anywhere experts. Visit workflo-solutions.co.uk. The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Welcome back as we go into the boardroom with Hunter and Hockey and answer your calls with free business advice, insight and inspiration. If you want your questions read out in the show or wish to speak directly to Tom and Willie, you can email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk. So gents, last week we talked about the BBC trying to lure new recruits with Peloton classes and free bagels on a Monday. But what do you think of Goldman Sachs' decision to allow its senior bankers to take as many holidays as they want? This is paid holidays in addition to their normal holidays. Tom. Get a grip. Let's see how long that lasts. Honest, honestly. So you're going to say to your senior team, have as many holidays as you want. Let's, let's call it what it is. That is no chance. So first of all, they're... they're making far too much money. And second of all, how on earth can you say to your senior team, take as many holidays as you want? It's nonsense. And it'll, my God, Willie. Yeah. I mean, what do what investors think? think? <laughs> I, am, I am taking my £7.50 out of Goldman Sachs immediately. Oh, my God. No, in favour of, what about on a limited scale, giving them additional paid holidays? Is, is that sensible? I think the difference here is, of course, it's saying it's unlimited. Yeah, I mean, 
I mean, unlimited Disney work. Well, where this doesn't stack up is, right, okay, this goes against everything that is said about senior bankers, right? When people read in the papers about the the huge sums that they're paid, they always make out, but, you know, these guys work 80 to 100 hours a week. Yeah. So what are they going to say then when they're all in Mauritius or wherever, you know, <laughs> down in the Keys, phoning <laughs> in to see how things are? I don't think this one will fly. No. Tom, your hero, that flawed genius, as Willie says, Elon Musk, has put his bid for Twitter on hold, saying he needs proof of the site's estimate that fake and spam accounts make up less than 5% of users, amid speculation it could be as high as 40-odd percent. Here's a business question. Is this a lesson in doing proper due diligence? And if you are buying a company... What should you look out for and what figures matter most? Yeah, so first of all, I love that Elon Musk, yes, flawed genius, yes, one of my heroes, is using the company, Twitter, that he's trying to buy to put out the messages to get the price reduced, Willie. <laughs> it's genius. <laughs> he's not going through the usual SEC channels. He just puts out a tweet the price falls and he said, all right, I'm, I'm going for a discount. I, I absolutely love this circus. I, I, I'm glued to the TV, CNBC and Bloomberg. I absolutely love what's what's going on with Elon Musk. But on a serious note, um, due diligence, when you're buying companies, and both Willie and myself have bought many companies, proper due diligence, and I say this to my team all the time, it isn't getting PwC in or Deloitte, or any of these people. It's getting your team to say, right, what's the key things we need to know about this business? And go and do the diligence yourself. Because you know every line in your business, and therefore you should be able to find out, is this flawed? Is it correct? And you'll do all sorts of stuff to get that information. And that, for me, is proper due diligence. So what are the key figures you should be looking out for? Oh, well, I mean, it, it depends on the business, but I mean, for, for all businesses, you would have the top line of revenue, but how are they recognising revenue? There's so many businesses um, that recognise revenue in a different way, so getting into the guts of when is a sale a sale, and Willie probably knows more about this than I do, but because in, re in retail, a sale was when it went through your till, but there are revenue recognitions and People used to inflate it and all the rest of it. But if you're clever, and it's got to be caveat emptor, buyer beware, you've got to be cleverer than the person selling you that business. You've got to be all over it. Willie, what's your advice? Tom mentioned it last week. No matter what it says in the numbers, the first place you go and look is at the cash, right? <laughs> the cash will tell you everything. People can mess numbers about, do what they like, but if, if the cash backs up what they're saying, it cuts out half the time in due diligence. But it, but due diligence is at the key, and, and the more time you take and the more further you are, then the less chance there is that you end up buying a pop, whatever. But one thing I'd like to say about Elon Musk, right? <laughs> Many things have been said about him. But no one alive in the last 10 years has used social media more to create value in companies <laughs> and take value out of companies the way that he has. Let me tell you, if he gets Twitter, it will be dangerous. <laughs> the way that he will manipulate. He is the greatest manipulator oh, of social media that is alive today. 
he's, he's using Twitter yeah. to drive down the price of buying Twitter. It's yes. genius. <laughs> Bringing it back to business in terms of that due diligence, has there ever been any examples when you've been looking at businesses, you've been maybe caught out? There's been something under the bonnet that you've missed? Anybody listening in would say, ah, I wish I'd looked there. Tough one for you. Because you're both highly successful, so I bet you've never been caught out. I'll, I'll tell you a good story. Not about being caught out, but the most <laughs> hilarious thing that ever happened when I went to buy a business. Many, many years ago, oh, 25 years ago, I went to buy a small competitor, a small refrigeration business, okay? And it was a, a gentleman like myself who ran his own business, right? And the company was actually called after him, right? I'll never forget this. And I went to a meeting in Royal Exchange. In fact, a building that I own today, right? <laughs> 25 years ago, I went up for this meeting in his accountant's office. And I'll never forget it. Just as we were getting to the end of the agreement, and it was not an expensive purchase. And he said, he was sitting there and he said, okay, so I want to just get it sorted out what Marvel will be going forward. And I looked at him and I says, well, what do you do at the moment for your company. I said, so I wanted to know if he was a big part of the sales drive or whatever he'd done. And he says, oh, no, no, I want to do what you do, running city. And I says, what's that? He says, no, taking people to golf, taking people to hospitality, <laughs> taking people to the football, right? And I says, are you serious? Straight face, and he said to me, yes. I says, give us a minute. <laughs> I'm not, uh, by the way, I want you to buy the business. Minute, I walked out with my accountant, my lawyer, come back in and I says, sorry, we're not interested. And I walked out. <laughs> I walked out. So on diligence, my my eldest son, Jamie, has joined the business. And one of, one of he's getting all these nuggets. So we were looking at investing in this thing. And I said, right, Jamie, you're on the diligence here. I said, so ask them which customers you can speak to to see how they perform. But more importantly, check out the ones they tell you, but go and speak to the ones they don't tell you. <laughs> yes, that's a good indicator. <laughs> Does ever your gut instinct come to the fore when you're going through it, even if the figures look right? Yeah, I I think you'll find that Willie and I have have got a feel for it because we're but people do business with people, and I'm I'm reading the person. Um, now, I've got accountants and lawyers who are doing the stuff, but I'm reading the person and I'm saying, are you telling me the truth here? I'm looking them in the eye. Are you telling me a load of baloney? And most successful people I've met have got this, and I think it's a natural ability. I don't know if it can be taught, Willie, of actually getting a feel saying, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Please Go and check that now, because I'm not sure what he said is right, you know? Yeah, what we'll have spent our time over the years is we've mostly been buying private, but privately owned businesses or family businesses. And the most important part of due diligence is spend a lot of time with them before you even look at the numbers, right? Because that'll tell you whether you actually want to go to that stage or not. And I've I've got to say to you that in all the businesses I've been involved in, it's probably been 50-50 where we've actually got to stage two. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. 
and we managed a whole show without talking about the football. <coughs> Don't forget you can put your business questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk and you can give us feedback or get involved by visiting thisisgo.co.uk and if you ever miss an episode, simply search for the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey wherever you get your podcast. The Go Radio Business Show with Workflow Solutions. Providing secure archive storage to your business. Go!